So, I mean, the, the, the big groundbreaking one for me was the study that they did. Why do people get stitches, right? And we you know, used to believe that they like air bubbles or, the, you know, the water's, you know, the water's sloshing around in your stomach and all those sort of things. But a very simple treadmill test of putting an individual at race, uh, at, at race pace and viewing their posture over time and, and when does their stitch occur. And in this particular study, it was very, very clear that postural changes led to a stitch, but the individuals that they were testing were unaware that their posture had changed. In other words, their shoulders had come back and the belly started getting long, right? Then the stitch started to kick in. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Condola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Hey, Matt. Rain's finally stopped here. It feels like I'm living in New England. It's just been pouring for days and days, but uh, the world is green and sunny today, so... First time I think I've been on a podcast for a while without a jacket, <laughs> you know. So, uh, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Yeah, same same here. I'm enjoying the the weather. Interesting. We we went out for a Mother's Day hike. So happy belated Mother's Day to all the moms listening. But when we uh, we went out, it was it was pretty interesting because we have this sort of annual hike we do where we go out to a waterfall and. Like, geez, the, with the amount of snow we got and the snow melt, this waterfall is just going to be raging, right? And some of the previous years, it was, it was a little bit more of a trickle than a waterfall, right? But, uh, so we were really excited about seeing this gushing waterfall and we get out there and the, uh, the creek is so clear and beautiful and we go on this hike. It takes us about, well, about two hours to get out there. And by the time we did, it was like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. The the waterfall was just a like a mudslide almost. It was just this huge mudfall and like what is going on? And it just happened to be during our hike that they must have released the dam. So oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh so yeah, I guess a uh, good sign that they had to release the dam and uh it, it wasn't exactly what we expected to see, but uh yeah, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory hike, uh, we're calling it now, but had a good time enjoying the weather, getting out there, seeing a lot of people. Wow, I was I was really surprised at how many people were out on the trails. So good to see people out there. And, and I think uh, it's been a lot of fun just enjoying the, the weather that we can. And I embrace the rain even at this point uh, over snow. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah, it reminds me of the the New York Triathlon, you know, in all its various guises when they used to swim in the Hudson and, you know, they'd release water and there wouldn't be sort of coordination, obviously, between the triathlon and the authorities. Or, you know, you, you could swim out. It's an out and back swim and you could swim out in seven minutes and then take 40 minutes to get back, you know, that kind of thing. When, when the weather changes, that was uh, pretty hectic. And some of the European... Uh, especially the Eastern European triathlons are often river swims and they are such tactical nightmares because if you swim out in the middle of the river, you go nowhere and you can see these guys, they're navigating right up against the embankments, like swimming around the, you know, the bushes and things like that because the current is weakest there. So uh, yeah, the whole, the whole understanding of how water works is fascinating. You know, one, one of our athletes just raced um, 70.3, um, Gulf Coast, you know, down in Florida, and uh, same kind of thing, just had to contend with uh, thousands and thousands of jellyfish, you know, just, just, oh, geez, yeah, yeah, so, you know, she, she had a good swim, but time-wise, you know, it, it, it showed that there was a jellyfish battle going on. <laughs> oh, yeah, you never know what you're going to get. I have a, a little story of my own where I went to the Vineman 70.3 Ironman years ago. And at that time, I honestly really didn't know how to swim very well at all. I, I got a swim coach, but this was the Russian River. So you're you're going to go against the current on the way out, and then you turn around, you come back with the current. But a few things I didn't consider, and they, they start you in sort of a deeper pooled part of the river. 
where you're just kind of waiting and you're literally waiting and waiting for the start. And as soon as the start goes off with my inexperience, I was too close to the guy in front of me. He kicked me right in the throat and I had to go to the side of the river and just kind of catch my breath. And that thought crossed my mind. Like I, maybe I don't do this today, <laughs> but I, I eventually got going, but well behind the pack, you know, they go off in age groups and uh, really interesting because what you don't plan for all that swimming that I did do, I didn't plan for the, the, uh, the shallow part of the river. So there was parts where I could literally feel my hands touching the ground. <laughs> That's very so, common. Yeah. Yeah. I was doing sort of like almost like a water crawl at points where, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. oh, geez, if I just stand up and run through this part, I think I'll be faster. So, you know, it was a mix of uh, water running, crawling and swimming, which uh, which I guess worked out fairly decent for me since my swimming wasn't super effective anyways. But yeah, uh, gotcha. you never know. My, you never know. My, my best two results in triathlon uh, one was extreme heat, no water on the run course. They ran out of water on the run course. And so I just survived better than most, became top 10. And then my other one was in knee deep water. So, you know, there was, there was no way to, you could swim on the course. So they just let everybody sort of run knee deep, thigh deep water. And when I can run in the swim, then I get, I'm in contact when I get, get out of the water. So those are my best two triathlon results, both because of water, the lack thereof on both occasions. Uh, this this reminds me, we should we should I think it'd be fun to do a podcast just on sort of our our stories, right? Things that have accumulated over time, just fun fun uh, stories to talk about because I know we we have plenty of them, right? Oh yeah. Now I'm when it comes to this one, I'm a brick with arms, you know, and uh, so <laughs> uh, anyway. Same, same, Bobby. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Matt. Well, let's jump into this week. Um, We're going to talk about the torso and the T-spine, the thoracic spine. And just to go back to what we've been saying the last two weeks, you know, that people need to consider the core as from the neck down to mid-thigh and from mid-forearm, you know, all the way to the sternum, that that it's not just uh, below the rib cage to the top of the pelvis. It's way more than that. And so today's conversation basically comes out of the fact that the T-spine is part of the core and, you know, that, that, that the, the torso is also part of the core. And I've learned so much from you over the years about understanding internal rotation um, of the ribs, right? Um, you know, my internal rotation world is normally with the legs and the hips and the feet, <laughs> And so to understand it from a rib perspective, and I also learned a lot about from you about the, the whole function of the serratus muscles, you know, uh, as opposed to just considering the intercostals and just in considering the diaphragm. So there's there's a lot to unpack here, uh, but, but I'm really, really looking forward to that, you know. So if you want, we could just start off with the simplest, but I'm going to let you just jump in first. Yeah, so... You know, one thing I I think comes to my mind first is there's a lot of poor work being done out there where I feel like athletes, they do understand that core work is important, but they may not really understand how they should be performing these movements, what they should be feeling. So I just had a, uh, well, somebody who is actually doing our movement improvement ask a very good question about their uh, core and the fact that essentially they do not feel like their their core is what is fatiguing most when they're doing exercises. And of course, if you feel it in your hip flexors more than anywhere else when you're trying to say uh, do a movement like your leg raises and you'll feel that hip flexor working or even creeping into your lower back, you know, that's an opportunity to understand that really we have not set a good compact position to begin with where what I want somebody to do is to learn how to get their their butt to get a little bit more showing in the mirror. So let's create a visual here where maybe you are hanging and before you start to lift your legs, you want to actually show your butt a little bit more in the mirror. And that's going to 
create a little bit more of that tilt through your hips. So we go into a little bit more of that posterior tilt with your hips first before we start to move and lift our legs up. That sets us up in a much better position. And what happens is we go from a long belly to a shorter belly, if you will. And that's that compact position we want to feel. So uh, oftentimes, I think we're just going through these movements to where we may we may think we are getting the recruitment where we want it to be. But when we start with a pattern that is using overactive or over dominant muscles like the hip flexors, then we're actually just kind of setting more of that same pattern that our body is used to. So it takes a little bit of patience and understanding about where to set our position. So you you mentioned internal rotation of the ribs and why I'm so big on that. Well, if we are to take your turn, Bobby, if we're taking that arrowhead in our sternum and we're pointing it down slightly and we're breathing out strong before we even start our rep, then automatically what's going to happen is we're going to shorten that belly line. We're going to get those hips under us with more um I think I would say normalization, if you will, or a better centigraded position so that you're actually starting the rep with good activation. You're not starting the rep with habitual uh, movement that your body's already kind of accustomed to using those more dominant muscles instead of really attacking the muscles that we want to really be able to get stronger in movements. Yeah. Um, you bring up so many things. I like making notes at 100 miles an hour because I want to respond to that. So I think a good question, and it's actually point number seven, so I'll get back to the others. But a good question uh, to answer for, for folks who've now just listened to what you've said is why? Why do we need the cyphoid process or the arrowhead down? Why do we need the rib cage balanced on top of the pelvis? And there's a number of answers to that. And it goes back to that, that individual who inquired about my core doesn't fatigue, right? Uh, and it's really hard to ascertain whether your core fatigues from a feel perspective, but it's really easy to ascertain whether the core has fatigued when form starts to alter, right? So, I mean, the, the, the big groundbreaking one for me was the study that they did, why do people get stitches, right? And we you know, used to believe that they like air bubbles or the, you know, the water's, you know, the water's sloshing around in your stomach and all those sort of things. But a very simple treadmill test of putting an individual at race, uh, at, at race pace and viewing their posture over time and, and when does their stitch occur. And in this particular study, it was very, very clear that postural changes led to a stitch. But the individuals that they were testing were unaware that their posture had changed. In other words, their shoulders had come back as a marker. So you're just measuring from, from the hip joint to the middle of the shoulder. And what is that angle of what is that angle of stack or that angle of attack, right? And as soon as that cyphoid process started departing the pubis symphysis and, and, and the belly started getting long, right? Then the stitch started to kick in. But from a performance standpoint, that's that's from a health kind of standpoint, right? But from a performance standpoint, your center of mass is coming higher up onto your, uh, you know, you're bringing your center of mass back as your chest goes up. And so your natural ability to maintain momentum is being impaired. And it's now demanding more of your legs to propel yourself because instead of following your torso position, which is creating weight in front of your center of mass, it's now having to generate momentum because your center of mass has moved back. And so that's why we fuss so much, right? And so with a lot of sports, there's um, an understanding of how the chest must move relative to the pelvis. And people often say to me, why do you pay so much attention to the chest? It's because I have more access to manipulating people's awareness of where their chest is than I have with their hips because their hips are touching the ground for hopefully only 200 milliseconds. Their foot's touching the ground and that's impacting how the pelvis responds. So the pelvis is responding to the feet, but you either pushing your chest along or you dragging your chest behind you. Those are your two options, right? 
So you're turning into a situation where you adding movement and you are adding load and you're adding fatigue to your core and thereby increasing oxygen consumption, losing physiological economy because you've lost mechanical economy. So it's a fascinating thing, you know, because when I first got to know you and individuals before you, um, I was always stuck as a coach with, okay, that you've shown me that that is weak. You've shown me that that needs to be strong, but why, you know? And so that question is, is I think my core is strong. And, you know, if you have beautiful form, you need less core strength, but sometimes to, uh, to attain a good, um, good posture, you need to address, you know, core strength, core muscle endurance, core range of motion. Uh, and, and those, the core is just incredibly complex to understand, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, a couple of points here. One is going back in time for me when I was a young runner and I had early videos or pictures where quite honestly, I think my form was pretty textbook, right? But then well-meaning coaches, I understand it. They meant well, but they kept telling me to get tall, get tall as I ran. And uh, you could see over a period of time that I was certainly running tall. It looked good in, in pictures, but you could see I was popping my top, as we like to say, and I started getting stitches. So when you said stitches, that brought back so many memories and so many races that I just was so frustrated because I was doing so well until the stitching took over and I just kept thinking it was about what I was eating beforehand or that I had to do more crunches and I got you know to the point where I think I had done I was doing something ridiculous like a thousand crunches in a session just to just to try to really get that those stitches uh, away right and it didn't work obviously Becoming more aware of a good compact position is first and foremost to me. And then realizing as we're running that if we're holding that position and we can feel, we know how that should feel like by doing this work, that's key to me, right? That takes us a long ways and that will allow us to eventually just hold that posture longer and let that that form flow out of us like we want, right? But there's uh, a couple of things here that I would finish my thought with. One, in run form, we actually start with our stack, we call it. And we are grabbing onto a band, the band's under our feet, and we are pulling that band one side at a time, wrist all the way up to our rib cage. And while we do that, because of the position we're in, the band is already getting us just slightly down in that position. So our arrowhead is automatically down. That band actually takes that cue for us. We really don't have to think about it much. And then the other part that's huge in this movement is getting your obliques to help to really stabilize your, your positioning. So these are the movements I like to think about starting with as opposed to starting with the leg lifts I mentioned earlier. You know, that's why we start with a position like that. So we are on our feet. It's more of a athletic anchor again, where we're able to now get that feeling. So when we are on our feet running, we can start to recognize, oh, that's, that's what it should feel like more for me. Okay. So that is why we chose to do athletic anchor movements like this. And we chose to start with movements like starting with your stack because it, it does help us to graduate. And eventually that athlete will get into more complex patterns where they are lifting their legs and they are putting more emphasis on their lower abs in different or various movements. But now they have a, a, a really good platform or base to learn from there. So that's that's where I think we do have to graduate in these steps. And I'm talking about elite athletes right? That need to actually start with their stack again. You know, people just assume that uh, if somebody's elite, they can automatically do proper leg lifts. And that's just not the case. And so really anybody of any level, I will start them with their stack. Um, at the very least, I'm going to reinforce good principles with somebody. 
and help to connect the dots, they may graduate a little quicker than others if they do have good positioning overall. But nine times out of 10, I find that we are actually making huge gains because we started with a basic movement like that. Incredible, Matt. That's that's fantastic. So again, always out of what you say comes all these these realizations for me again, right? So uh, uh, a lot of the triathletes that we work with, you know, come from swimming backgrounds, right? And and swimmers, uh, individuals are drawn to swimming. Typically, if they have a longer torso, they have a, a bigger wingspan, you know, from fingertip to fingertip when they, you know, out in that sp- arm spread position, they, they tend to be a little longer than what their, you know, what their, their height is, right? So they, they have that, that swimmer's build, right? Uh, and then with runners, again, they have the much, much shorter torso and the longer, and the longer legs. And if you have longer legs and a shorter torso, you can have a bigger stride angle, right? So when you're working with a lot, a shorter, uh, shorter legs, longer torso, cadence is your friend, right? You, you're looking at cadence. Uh, but again, with the runners, they have that, uh, with a shorter torso, they have that longer stride length, right? So realizing that the, the taller the runner is, um, that be- that creates problems for the core, right? Because, you know, that whole inverse action, the longer your legs are, the, the lower your cadence is up to a point, right? When your legs start exceeding 30, your inseam starts exceeding 34, 35, 36 inches, right? Then you've got really, really long legs, but now your pelvis is super unstable because of the width of your stride angle, right? And so there's that inverse thing that happens with really, really tall runners. They start shortening their stride length because otherwise their pelvis is too exposed. But in both those cases, it's easier for the shorter torso to stay stacked, right? The longer torso, it's easier to pop the top. In other words, disconnect the front of the chest away from the pelvis. I think maybe that bears a little bit of explanation, right? That the relative distance from you, the your front ribs to the top of your pelvis and from the back ribs to the top of your pelvis should remain constant. If it's widening in the front, and that's an interesting point too, people's abdominal musculature in the front doesn't mind being hyperextended. And the lumbar spine and the support musculature in the lumbar spine can quite easily be fatigued it's also a defense mechanism, right? You pull back, you pull your shoulders back, you arch your lower spine. That's obviously mechanically uh, challenging for you from a, 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 a momentum standpoint, but it's also starts now putting your, your low back and your SI under pressure, you know? So those are really interesting things. And, and I think at this point, maybe for people to understand how the T-spine functions during running, and how the chest functions during running, I get back to my old pogo stick example, right? So the halfway down the pogo stick is your hips and your legs. And then from your navel upwards is the top part of the pogo stick. And so people understand the stack is if you lean that pogo stick slightly forward, you can. it's still the same height, right? It's just leaned forward. If, it's, if the chest is connected to the pelvis, now your pogo stick's intact. Whatever leg spring stiffness you have available when you're now coming off the ground is going upwards and forwards. As soon as that pogo stick starts to fail in the midsection and the top part comes upright, but the lower part is still leaning forward, now the energy that's being given from the toe-off is coming out the front of the hips, all right? And you've now left this center, you've now left this uh, ribcage behind, the poppers top. And at some point, you now have to make that transition. And that happens in mid-stance when the runner now collapses because they got stuck on mid-stance and their ground contact time goes up. Whereas if they had that torso forward, not only will they get a better rebound out of the, the tissues in the leg, the leg spring stiffness, get a better rebound, all right? But their rebound will be more forward, all right? And there'll be much more energy recycled and which they are going to have to generate if they left the chest behind. So it can get, get quite complicated. But I think the thing to, to understand is that running is pushing. Running is not pulling, right? And so if your torso is behind, you have to... Use your abdominal muscles to get your torso forward. But if your 
your your spinal support muscles can be extended into balance and your your front core can be uh, rhythmically contracted to to keep that on top. So it's all the time feeling like your center of mass, which is four fingers down from your navel, four fingers in from your navel, right? And that you've got your hands around this giant pearl, which is your center of mass. Everything that you are doing is pushing this pearl forward. At no point in time do you want to reach back and grab the pearl and bring it with you, pull it with you. You know, so that feeling, that's why I love those drills where you do the high arm action, stack the stack the chest properly on top of the pelvis, get that cyphoid process down, the arrowhead down, and you have that broomstick ahead of you and you just pushing. I just I just love that that whole feeling that they create. Sprinters do it a lot, right? I think distance runners get that feeling where they're going, okay, what does it take Matt Pindola wise to keep my chest in that position? How, where do I need to be strong in my lumbar spine, my QL, my core, et cetera, et cetera? And then B, what are the feelings that I'm looking for that this whole thing is pushing, that I've got my hands up against the back of a big old truck, all right? And my core is properly engaged rhythmically and I'm pushing this truck forward, all right? And the pressure being put on my hands is remaining constant. It's not decreasing because my cadence is slow. That kind of imagery, push, 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 I think is hugely valuable. Yeah, I know so many good points that you brought up. And uh, I would I would say that bringing myself in as an example, I was a late bloomer when it came to growth. So for whatever reasons, I got, I'm six foot two and I had a significant growth spurt from about 19 to 21 really. And, uh, or maybe starting around 18, I would say. And it's interesting, maybe that is in part because I was running so many miles so young and then I had to back off all those miles and now my body actually had a chance to to grow while I was going through all of these over training injuries I had. And uh, what I noticed though is that my torso is longer relative to my, right? So for me, I don't have exceptionally long femurs or legs. It's um, it's more about that torso length. So I had to double down on movements that are going to support that torso. And that's where I think just having that conversation with the serratus interior, you mentioned before, that I really started to realize that if I were to take that serratus, which is that muscle, they call it the superhero muscle sometimes, if you're trying to visualize that, you'll always see it really built up on a superhero, right? So under their armpit, along their ribs, you'll see those riblet muscles are very stacked, right? They're built up really well. And with me, what's saved me is really building that strength up quite a bit. But that muscle is going to help to uh, protract your scapula. So moving that arm forward, but also that upward rotation and overhead reach of your scapula. That is going to be that serratus muscle. So you can see how important it is if you are a runner with your arm swing, but uh, they call it the boxer's muscle because of that reach that it gives you. But it's also obviously very important for all three sports in triathlon. Swimming is an obvious one and even bracing on the bike position. So what we look at there, what I look at is getting in uh, two parts pull to every part push. And what I mean by that is something like face pull-aparts, where we are getting a lot of those muscles in the posterior chain to really engage and get really strong. But when I do the push parts, now I want to do what I call a push plus, right? So I will do, say, a push-up where... I don't just stop when my arms are locked out, but I'll continue to push the ground away, allowing that um, that shoulder or that scapula to continue to protract, right? So I'll do some purposeful push movement that way, and I just make sure that I keep a good balance because everything you're describing here, running is just a beautiful symphony of, um, I think, the pull action of muscles, right? We discussed before, Muscles really only pull, but the action we want is to be able to push, right? Um, and when we're talking about the action of pushing, 
there's a lot of beautiful co-contractions that are going on in a symphony that the muscles can contribute to when they're well-trained. And that's the thing I try to keep in mind is a balance. Um, so what I would go back to is my original story about all those crunches I did, not realizing that it wasn't doing much for me after a while. Maybe in the beginning, doing uh, I McGill curls, for example, are a great way to feel that movement when you're trying to get good spinal flexion. But there's a point where you need to add more dynamic trunk control, more demands on that dynamic trunk control. So you have to advance movements. And I I do see a lot of runners that are just, they're actually just sticking with the basics um, and they're just adding more and more reps to those basic movement patterns, right? And one of the easiest visuals I can give is if I were to test somebody in person on their trunk control, their, their overall control and stability through that movement, I might have them do a renegade row where they're in a plank position. So looking like they're going to do a push-up but they have their hands on kettlebells or dumbbells and they're rowing one kettlebell back at a time. And I'm looking to see, are they twisting their torso to do it? Are their hips steering forward or are they, are they losing that position? And you will end up seeing that most people are going to have a really hard time just to get a, a row in on each side without losing that position. And that's exactly where we need to be able to live. We need to be able to live in that kind of a position. So making sure that you are advancing your dynamic trunk control demands so that you can um, essentially increase your overall capacities. You want to be able to up your volume or your speed work. The way that I see it in my mind is that that means that I have to um, up my capacities on what my torso can control. Brilliant. Thank you, Matt. That, that clears things up as, as usual, right? So working backwards with what you're saying, I love the whole idea where you say picking up one kettlebell at a time. I'm thinking, okay, only Michael Jackson could pick up both kettlebells at the same time out of a blank <laughs> position. <laughs> yeah, it would be pretty cool. All right. So just some, to, to add some things to that, right, is the Interesting to know when we talk about long torsos and short torsos is that if you have a short torso and long legs, your heart is very much closer to your legs. It's probably one of those auto-selecting things, right? So again, when you're a swimmer with a longer torso, your heart's higher up and it's closer to your arms, right? So it, it's an interesting, uh, one of my mentors, Professor Timothy Noakes, uh, always used to say to me, if, if you want to be a better athlete, you have to go back and, and re-choose your parents. You know, so sometimes that's, that's a little problematic, right? Um, an interesting thing about an arched T-spine and a top that's popped, right, is it takes your forearms out of the game. Uh, so now you can't swing your forearms. You start articulating at the, at the elbow. And now you go into that little drummer, drummer boy position where your forearms start swinging and they're creating vertical forces, right? They're not, they're not part of that arc that's leading the elbow back. And when the elbow gets back and runs out of room, it's now pushes the chest forward onto your drive line. So that's very, very important. And similarly, if, if that upper back, though, those uh, scap control musculature, that upper back muscular erector spinae, all of those muscles, if they weak and they go into their fetal position, it means you pull the shoulders back out of neutral. And when you do that, you get into that position that, you know, we like to call the dying quail, right? And now the same thing with the dying quail. You can't swing those those uh, upper arms. You can only swing your forearms again. And so now that's called a disconnect, right? So whether whether you swinging your forearms up and down or whether your, your upper arms are stuck back, that's a disconnect. And so now that beautiful sympathy that you're talking about is not possible. The arms are swinging in isolation. And what very often then happens when that when that lumbar spine becomes arched or stuck, rigid like that, is you can no longer rotate your shoulders. And so now you can't reach forward with that shoulder. And so now you're not engaging the core in returning the, the leg, right? Because, it, you know, that, that uh, serapi effect of, of the shoulder to mid-thigh on the opposite side is when you're pulling back, now that's helping you get that leg back through again right? 
And if, if you're stuck back up there, it's not helping. And so you're taking this reactive running motion, this natural running motion, you're taking it uh, to uh, more of a proactive, I have to pick my legs up. My legs aren't being picked up, right? You know me, I'm always taking a stopwatch or something and hanging that cord down and saying, look, it's not your hamstring's primary job to bring your heel to your butt before your knee comes through when you're running, right? It's the momentum of your pelvis. And if that upper body is stuck back, now you have to pick up your heel and you have to work really hard at firing your hip flexors to get your knee in a set position, right? And that's, again, mechanically really, really wasteful. And these are things that you don't necessarily see on video. When somebody runs with, with the pop topped, right? I mean, with the, the, the top pop, what you're seeing for most people is a guy that, or a gal that's running like a superhero, right? The chest is up, the head is up, the arm, the elbows are opening at the back. So like a really, really powerful, artistic Greek, you know, mythology kind of run, right? But it's terribly uneconomical and massively fatiguing. Yeah, that took me a long time to understand. And quite honestly, I learned that through through you. And that's that's where I was able to apply a lot of the strength principles that I that I teach today, right? But going to just even back when you were a baby, and the first thing that you do is you want to push the ground away and look around, right? So that clavicle um, and this is just research that I've read, but what I, from what I understand, that's the first bone that really develops for your strength in your body, that clavicle. So you can do that. You can push the ground away, look around. And when you take that concept and say, you know, that is so neurally rich there, right? That whole area around my shoulders to my head, that's closest to my brain. There's a reason why I feel like there that's so um, important to discuss because when you talk about the serapi effect, right, and that's that's where you imagine that uh, that serapi uh, dress that that uh, that that we talk about, where that would wrap around our torso, and that's what helps to connect everything from the right shoulder to the left arm, right? And in this case, we're talking about if I'm leading with my right shoulder, that left arm swing is going to pull back more efficiently, right? So I, I think it's important to talk about that a little bit because when it comes to thoracic rotation, I think that's a concept that it took me a long time to understand what you were talking about because I learned thoracic rotation differently. And I was trying to do a lot of passive movements to get better thoracic rotation at the time, not really understanding that it was really about my left shoulder leading if I wanted my right arm to swing back more effectively, not trying to think about rotating my upper uh, spine more, right? So I think we, we could talk a little bit about that to clear up some myths and misconceptions there, you know, but uh, finally, I would just say that when we are talking about this rotation, this spiral line, or this wind-up effect that we want, how that really works with our cadence, this has been a game-changer for me in understanding that ultimately all it took was a few tweaks, and I was able to really start to get that cadence up. But the tweaks for me personally came with leading with my shoulder, everything from there got set. So um, yeah, I'd like to talk about that. But if you go back to the renegade row that I described earlier, what I think is interesting is that people will at first just try to row that kettlebell and they, they, they lose their positioning, right? They're, they're, they're basically falling into uh, one side versus the other, not able to steer their hips efficiently. Well, as soon as I tell them, no, 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 this, this exercise is actually more about how well you're pushing down with the opposite arm. In other words, how well you're leading with that shoulder with the opposite arm. That's what allows you to roll that kettlebell back and get that thoracic rotation that you want. And that's why a drill like that really helps to, uh, to, to teach that. Although that is one drill that I'll show as an example, a test. But again, in run form, I want to point out that we do a banded drill where you're standing on your feet, you're pushing a band out in front of you, you're pulling that band apart, 
you're pulling back against your torso. That is a better step to start with for me as an athletic anchor movement. And eventually you graduate more towards the groundwork in later phases. But uh, that's that's why we have that banded push-pull drill in our banded dynamics and run form, for example. Yeah, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about that because, you know, the the old man with the big gut was chosen as the model for the push-pull plus, right? <laughs> and uh, But it makes a big difference. I mean, just yesterday I was, I was just... Uh, uh, doing my little, what do you call those push-ups where you you clear your hands and then bring it back down again? Where you're doing that little plus movement? Yeah, hand right. release push-up. Yeah, and and my wrists won't let me put my hands flat, so I'm doing them on my fists, right? So I'm doing them on my little padded mat. But now when I'm pulling back like that, I'm like just punching the floor, and it's it's nice and cathartic push-up now too, right? So up come the shoulders, bang into the ground, and then boop, up goes the push-up, and then the plus at the end. So you know, just in- incredible. Yep. So again, to get back to the T-spine, um, it, people understand that I dozens, hundreds of runners, I have them stand there, stand and ask them to flex and extend their T-spine. And they cannot do it. They have zero awareness and zero mobility in their T-spine, right? They'll lift up their shoulders. They'll pull their shoulders back. They'll arch their lumbar spine. They'll do anything, but to get them to just come up and only use the extensors of the T-spine, really, really difficult. So the communication between the brain and the T-spine is, in most people, is almost non-existent. And for people to realize that you collapse if you rotate uh, with your lumbar spine, but you don't collapse when you're using that spiral line and you are hinging through the T-spine. So... And, and again, as we age, the one place that shuts down massively quickly, especially for triathletes, right, because they're using so much lumbar spine, uh, you know, support work while they're swimming, and then on the bike, the same thing, lumbar spine, lumbar spine, that they get stuck in that position, right? And as soon as they start running, now they, they, they go back to the old lumbar spine, and then they stuck with that with that T spine with the T spine stuck. You know, you know, most people they if they get that T spine mobilized, it's a shocking and b massive release. People don't know how much tension lives in that T spine, right? And I had a great example from a swim coach the other day um, where they use weights to pull the athlete's pelvis down and force them to. Uh, push the front of their chest down in order to get their hips up, which is the same principle we're trying to teach in running, right? But if you think of it in the water, now you have your chest as as this box, this you know um, rectangular box lying in the water, and the back of the box is being pulled down, right? So the 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 pelvis part. But if you want to get that back of that box down, you're using your core to push your shoulders down. Back of the box comes up, back of the, the lower ribs come up, that lifts up the pelvis, improves your streamlining. So there's quite a lot of, other than the ipsilateral versus the contralateral, the ipsilateral movement of swimming to the contralateral of running, but there's a lot to be learned uh, with with how to access your upper core or you know your, your core musculature in terms of connecting your chest to your ribs from the swim, right? So a lot of swimmers have that, kind of that powerful barreling kind of run, which saves them a lot, right? So they, they can get into a good posture. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's so much to how the body is integrated joint by joint, how we're stacking, if we have proper mobility and stability where it's needed. So with the lower spine, the lumbar spine, this is, again, an area that I feel like there's a lot of disassociation, misinterpretation. And, you know, I would, I would call this whole category a re-education of how we are meant to move and why are we not moving that way? Well, you've described it really well before. We're, we're trying to restore your best form and, and shake off all the other crap, if you will, right? And so, again, we're not trying to get your body to move like so-and-so. We're just trying to restore your best form. And if you look back 
to when you were, I'll go back to being a baby and you learn how to push yourself uh, off of the ground to look around and then you crawl and then you walk and then you run and the terrible twos, right? You're just so active moving around. I think they did an interesting study years ago about an Olympic athlete that was trying to keep up with the movement patterns of a uh, two-year-old, right? And they were exhausted trying to keep up with this two-year-old because, you know, they're so adapted and neurally rich to, to all the movement patterns they're doing. And they are in a prime position to just keep learning and keep progressing. And if we go back to those early days, all the way up till uh, around 12 years old, especially, that's where I think we have to get back to. That's the way our bodies want to move. And then, of course, what happens over time is that we have life, right? We have work and we have responsibilities. We have our studies. We have all of these obligations that keep us from moving well. So, you know, to me, again, that's a big conversation about, you know, geez, why do I have to do all of these movements you guys are talking about? Well, it's different if you are moving constantly and have a uh, a job where you you always have to have all of that integration intact and you'll you won't lose it because you're constantly doing something that restores natural movement patterns but we do have to look at over time even for active athletes that that have a lot of good training in their programming and they're certainly moving a lot we still can't negate the fact that we have years where we didn't do as much of that or that we are still sitting for eight hours a day and then going out for a run. So we, we have to we have to manage that with, uh, I think, a priority model like the one we're discussing here that does just connect the dots for us and allow us to move the way we were meant to move as individuals. Yeah, Absolutely. So, Matt, I'll close this up with some examples, right? You look back at the heroes of, of, of previous generations. You look at Pavo Nermi, you know, with all those world records and all those Olympic medals. You look at Emil Zatopek, right? You look at Sebastian Coe. You look at, you know, Dave Scott, the, the brilliant Ironman, Ironman champion, right? All of them with pop tops, right? And they're, they're given respective times that they ran. And then you look at this modern generation. You look at Jakob Ingebrigtsen, you know, the, the Olympic gold medalist in the 1500. You look at Hayden Wilde, the superstar on the ITU circuit, right? You look at Christian Blumenfeld, you know, straddles all of the distances in triathlon, very successful. You look at their torso control. You look at their T-spine function. You look at their rib cages and how they're holding, and that's, that just shows that that previous generation was not yet aware of how beautiful that is. And these newer guys running so much faster than those, right? And people's observations of the Kenyans, like they kind of look sloppy, right? They kind of look like they, they don't have great posture, right? And you look at people's understanding of what is good running posture uh, and, you're, and you're going, uh, no, that's the cheerleader look. The cheerleader look does not work for distance running, right? So we, we not only are um, having people realize how much work they need to do that, but they need to reset how they see themselves because I think that's a big part of it, right? If you're viewing yourself as running chest up, you know, elbow angle open, head high, then that's a poor image for you in terms of mechanical economy, right? So you need to get that image of, of compact and shuffling and unstoppable and running for miles and miles and, you know, that, that feeling like, oh, wow, this person is in so much relaxation mode and so powerful and so little extraneous movement, that's who I want to aspire to look like when I run. Yeah, and I think, you know, you mentioned uh, some icons that really were groundbreaking for the sports and they they worked so hard. They were also anomalies in the sense they were very robust, right? And that's not something that um, I take away from people. In other words, some people are going to be a little bit more robust or even have moving, movement patterns. I'll take in my world, the squat, for example. You may see that some people don't have the textbook squat, but it does work for them. And there is some additional, let's say, movement that I may see in their knee versus another person who does it more textbook, but textbook, but it does work for them. And it is within acceptable range. And so 
you know, again, that's where I go back to, we want to get a person to understand that they can improve their patterns, but visualizing what it is that I, is more optimal for them, I think is, is a key here. And I'll finish with my thought of, with movement improvement. I'm very proud of this guys. We have brand new movement improvement out. There's five tests that uh, we give. There used to be 10. I am guilty of uh, trying to over deliver. And so I realized people are getting a little bit overwhelmed with 10 tests. So I broke it down to the most important five tests that we wanted to give along with the same exact movements that we teach Bobby, you and I in camp after camp of what we found to be successful for each area from the big toe through the the foot and ankle uh, all the way up the chain and essentially that hierarchy is really important so we made it very simple if you do the test there's three movements to follow up with if you find you're non-optimal but the main thing that i want to reiterate here is finding what's optimal for you Uh, because i've been talking to a lot of people that have been doing our movement improvement and one person in particular was saying well, I'm not optimal in my scratch test, right? So that's where we're reaching overhead with our right arm and we're reaching behind us with our left arm and then vice versa. We're looking at internal and external rotation of the shoulders as as well as being able to get proper extension through the, the upper uh, thoracic, right? And by improving that range, even just by a, a couple percent from where you were at before, that's that may be optimal now for you. You may not be touching fingers ever. And I'll just take myself an example to close off with this is I do have tree trauma in my past, right? So I've discussed that and and why I had my left shoulder completely torn out and I have a lot of scar tissue there. I'm never going to touch fingers, okay? But I am maintaining the best range for me that I can. And that allows me to run more efficiently and pain-free. So, you know, really just take a look at how can I become more optimal for me and and restoring that optimal position and then maintaining that as you age. Because we know that as we age, we tend to lose more and more of our mobility and that restricts us from doing the things we love. So that's that's the first step to me is to at least look at how we can maintain the range that we have without losing it as we age. Uh, So that's my closing thought, but definitely check out our new movement improvement, guys. It's absolutely free and really, really happy with the feedback we're getting on on this new uh, free program of ours. That's great, man. I wonder if Katie Ledecky can grab her forearms in a scratch test. (laughs) That would be amazing. Well, thanks so much, Matt. That's great, everybody. Thanks for listening. Uh, look forward to speaking with you again soon. Again, if you guys have you know any questions, observations, let us know. Are we going in the kind of directions that you want us to go? Uh, give us a shout out if you guys have ideas and things about that you'd like to listen to in the future. As always, thanks for listening to the Run Form podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pandola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, Don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run. Well, that was was awesome. Yeah.